listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, David. Hey, Bob. How you doing? I'm doing good. Glad to be talking. Glad to, glad to be here. Glad to have you here. Thanks for taking the time. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a Non-Zero Podcast. You are David Wallace-Wells. Um, you write a newsletter uh, these days for the New York Times, uh, often about climate change, but sometimes about other uh, kind of planetary issues and issues of about the future. Um, you wrote a book called The Uninhabitable Earth in 2019. Um, and uh, that was a book, you know, I don't often use the word jeremiad but would you say that 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 uh it wasn't a very it wasn't a super upbeat book right about climate change um but then you you wrote like a, a little less than a year ago you wrote a piece of times it seemed like you'd gotten in a slightly better mood about it uh so i wanted to talk to you about both ends of that like how uh, depressed are you now? Because meanwhile, this summer, I think a number of people who maybe hadn't been thinking a lot about climate change are finally getting a little alarmed for reasons we'll discuss. So like, for starters, what is your state of mind at the moment about the, the future of the planet climate-wise? Well, pulling back from me just for a brief second, I think okay. this is a question that I get asked a lot. I end up talking about a lot. I've written about it too. Um, but so much depends on exactly where you're coming to this question from. So if you're checking in, wondering about climate change for the first time in your life, um, I think there's no way of talking about it that's not, it's quite bad, it's gonna get really bad, um, and we've done a really bad job of managing it. Um, if you are checking in for the first time since, you know, um, there was major Senate testimony about it in 1988, same story. It's like we've done more damage since that testimony than we did in all the history of humanity before. So knowing that this was a problem and we needed to address it has not actually even changed the, the sort of trajectory of carbon emissions. Um, there has been over the last few years, I think, a little bit more reason for optimism. And because of when I started wondering about worrying about and engaging with climate, which was, I guess, now about seven or eight years ago, um, my life sort of maps this recent period, which is to say, when I first um, was researching it and working on it and writing about it, the story looked extremely grim. Um, it looked as though not only had we not done anything in the many decades we had known about this problem, but that we were heading for futures that seemed, um, if not impossible to imagine, you know, supporting human civilization, at least they raised legitimate questions about whether um, the way that we had lived for decades or centuries could be sustained. And that is to say, we were expecting as a kind of business as usual, that's the language that was often used, a business as usual um, forecast for the end of the century of four to five degrees Celsius warmer than the pre-industrial average, which is about three to four times the amount of warming that we've had to this point today, when we're at about 1.2 degrees of warming. Um, that's, that's Celsius. So, yeah. uh, okay, so we're talking, uh, People should should inflate for uh, Fahrenheit if they're in the. Yeah, that's people talk about that all the time. Although personally, I think that when you're talking about global average temperatures, the the meaning is so different from our everyday experience already that talking about four degrees or seven degrees mm -hmm. doesn't 
seem all that significant to me. But yes, if you want to adjust it to Fahrenheit, you can. Let multiply. me. I mean, the other confusing thing about this is they always talk, as you did, about relative to pre-industrial levels, which also doesn't mean a lot to me. Which it has in common with Celsius. So if if you're talking about like relative to now, and 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 then the end of the century, almost eighty years from now. In terms of Fahrenheit, what is the horizon of possibilities? What are we hoping for at this point? Kind of a, a kind of pretty good case scenario, given where we are. Uh, Fahrenheit rise relative to now would be what? About one degree would be a good outcome, pretty good outcome. But that would be okay. To pull but, back, but unlikely, probably at this point. Probably unlikely, although I say I would say that's in the range of possible if we really get our act together. But uh-huh. just to go back to something you said a minute ago about the pre-industrial average, um, of course, that doesn't none of us were around back then. We don't know. Um, the way I often talk about it is to say that at um, at the level of warming that we're at now, we are already entirely outside the range of temperatures that enclose all of human history. So the rise of human civilization from from the beginning of agriculture through the development of the modern nation state and everything we know of as contemporary culture, all of that took place under climate conditions that we've left behind. Mm-hmm. And from here, and, and we're in part, you know, depending on what period you're looking at and what effect you're talking about, we're in part the result of the fact that those climate conditions were so stable and brought us into, you know, what some scientists talk about as a Goldilocks zone for human development. Um, we are already outside that range already, which means we're running a pretty um, worrying experiment about what, what, um, how much of the culture and civilization that we and our expectations that we have at this point can survive these new condi- conditions. Presumably, a lot can, but probably not all. Um, and we're expecting, yeah, probably something like twice as much warming as we've seen to this point. Um, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. Um, but there's going to be dramatically more um, from here compared to where it was for all of human history before the industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I was first writing about climate in um, 2016, 2017, I thought we were heading for three or four times, not just twice as much. And that, you know, we knew enough from the science to know that there were some really, really quite ragged, um, punishing, challenging impacts that we would expect at that level of warming. And, Maybe even it would get higher than that if, you know, the climate itself was a little bit more sensitive than we expected, or it took us a little bit longer to draw down fossil fuel, you know, et cetera. Um, And so I had a pretty high baseline of alarm and, um, you know, I had a quite grim view of the climate future. Um, I still believed I wrote in my book, even though it is, as you say, a quite grim book. um, I still said, we're going to have many billions of people living on this planet. So one of the big questions is, how and how we're going to have to adjust. Um, But it was also hard to keep those two things in mind, the idea that there would be um, a large, robust um, human culture 100 years from now at four or five times as much warming as we have today, three or four times as much warming as we have today. Um, Those two things were kind of hard hard to reconcile. Over the last few years, we've had, for a number of reasons, which we can talk about in some detail if you want, we've sort of revised those expectations pretty dramatically downward from three to four X down to about two X or even 1.5 X from where we are today. And partly that's because we've, we're making these technological gains. We're making major investments. We're actually rolling out renewables, not just talking about it. Partly it's because climate has become a central part of um, domestic politics and global politics. Maybe not as central as I would like, but much more central than it was a decade ago. 
Um, partly it's because um, we've realized that some of the forecasts we we used in modeling that future a decade ago were actually pretty pessimistic and um, probably unrealistic. And partly because we've had a kind of a groundswell, um, you know, sort of political awakening, particularly among um, a lot of the world's youth, that makes a future return to fossil fuel use or a future of sort of status quo over generations seem quite unlikely, um, mm -hmm. maybe not impossible, but quite unlikely. And so as a result, the period of time that I've been thinking about this has been a period of time in which I've gone from, you know, thinking a business as usual future looked pretty apocalyptic to one in which a business as usual future looks a lot worse than it is today when things are already a bit jagged and ragged, um, but much cooler and more manageable than the future, which we imagined a few years ago. And so how I think about that, how listeners to think about that is says a lot about what else we bring to the table too, um, how much we believe in human adaptability, human compassion, um, you know, the the ability of cultures to not just empathize in the abstract, but actually help one another through tough times um, on the one hand versus on the other hand, our sort of reflex to turn away from that suffering. Um, and so exactly how you make sense of this new prediction is um, probably says a lot more about you than about climate science. But for my part, I'm relatively speaking more optimistic about the climate future than I was a few years ago, even though I think the path from here to there, which is to say from here to the relatively more manageable future is still gonna be extremely bumpy. There are a lot of uncertainties, a lot of unknowns and a lot of risks. Um, but one of the things that is not a, uh, an unknown is that um, it's going to get warmer, which means the climate damages are going to accumulate, even if we limit warming to some of these optimistic scenarios. Okay. Um, and by the way, just to uh, uh, turn the conversation briefly to me, um, the, you mentioned 1988, the James Hansen testimony. Um, and that year, the New Republic ran what was certainly its first... Uh, Cover story on climate change. It was an editorial called How to Cool Off the Earth. There was like an image of an ice cube on the cover. And do you know who wrote that, David? Was it Bob Wright? You, you know, it's funny you should mention that name. It actually was. Uh, the um, And uh, it's been a long, uh, that was a dramatic summer. You, you were too young to remember it. But, uh, you know, Hansen testified before Congress. And, and uh, that was the first time climate change was really a thing at all. It was called global warming. By the way, is there a reason they changed kind of the official term from global warming to climate change? Was that like a tactical decision by people who wanted to get the right kind of publicity for it or something or what? My understanding is that it was the opposite, that it was in part done by people who wanted to downplay the risks. Ah, but I, that makes it, sense. Yeah. I actually think it, it's it somewhat better communicates the, the, the story in the sense that what we're looking at is climatic disarray much more than a steady predictable increase. So there are going to be some places that are wetter. There are going to be some places that are drier. There are going to be some places that are many, most places are going to get hotter, but a lot of the other effects um, are less predictable. And the disruption may be in fact, how much they deviate from our expectations and recent experiences more than um, taking us into totally uninhabited, you know, to totally um, unimaginable heat zones. So, you know, for instance, England, Europe is never going to get as hot as India is today, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be completely manageable right. um, because those societies, those um, that infrastructure, the cities, they were all built um, on the on the set of expectations that are no longer with us. 
But you mentioned Hansen. Hansen's a really interesting figure even today. Um, he's become in the last several years um, an outspoken critic of the modeling story that I just described in which we are getting pretty optimistic about the future compared to where we were a few years ago. And he takes a much more alarmist view of where we are today based on, on a different approach to modeling involving Earth's energy imbalance as opposed to the effect, direct calculable effects of greenhouse gases. And he says that, um, you know, in part because we're, we're drawing down aerosols and eliminating air pollution, which at the moment cool the planet by reflecting sunlight, we're, we're eliminating that air pollution, which is, that's good. Today, air pollution kills about 10 million people a year, um, but we're probably going to be adding somewhat significantly to our, our warming problem as a result. And he says that we're actually very much on our sort of that old worst case scenario that we thought we had left behind. So he's also an interesting sort of um, bookend figure here. He's like, he, he was the alarmist in 1988. In many ways, what he said then has been completely validated. Um, and he's now staking out an alarmist position by the context of 2023, even as the world has largely caught up to his perspective from a, 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 de a few decades ago. Huh, huh. And he, he was at NASA at the time, right? He was a, he's a, was a climate scientist. Now. Um, so uh, let's talk about a recent example of disruption uh, that seems to be, well, that, an interesting question is how confidently and in what sense you can attribute calamities to climate change. But obviously this has been a summer uh, that featured, uh, first of all, a number of fires in Southern Europe and Canada, most recently in Hawaii. Um, why don't we take Hawaii and talk about, uh, first of all, the question of a, attributing things to climate change, but also like, I gather climate change could enter into that in more than one way, could have been a contributing factor in more than one way, right? Yeah, I mean, I think this is um, true of basically all climate impacts. Um, when, we, when we talk about warming, we're talking about transforming the Earth's planet, you know, the planetary system. Um, that is, as I was saying earlier, it's not just one story about temperature rise. It's a million stories at once. They're very complicated and interconnected. You know, sometimes you find yourself talking about the way that cloud formation patterns have changed or ocean circulation, circulating currents are changing. Um, the way that, you know, less Antarctic ice is, um, meaning that more sunlight is absorbed in the, in the Southern oceans. Um, you know, the way that more direct heat because of no clouds means less uh, moisture in the soil. I mean, it, it gets extremely complicated and extremely technical. Um, and climate is playing a role in almost all of those um, aspects of the story, um, which means in general, the wildfire picture is that um, most fires are started by humans in one form or another, a downed power line, a dropped cigarette, but a campfire that gets out of control. But even Something in the case of a downed power line, it could be that the wind that downed the power lines was a product of climate change, leaving aside the question of how dry, you know, the, the area was, how conducive the area was to sustaining the fire, right? And my, my sense was that in, in Hawaii, that is arguably the case that you've got at least these two things going on. Well, there were winds. It does seem as though it, the fire started when a power line was down by these um, supercharged winds, which were supercharged because there was a, a hurricane passing by Hawaii. I mean, even though it was many miles away, it still produced these powerful winds. 
Um, on the other hand, there's it would, it's an open question whether that hurricane was there or whether it was as strong as it was because of climate change or not. Um, in general, I think the safest thing to say is that we are living in a transformed climate. Almost everything, to some degree, bears um, you know bears the fingerprint of climate change. But there could have been a hurricane like that passing through 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, but it is you know it is these things interacting together which are producing this. Um, and we this can event. say, and we can say, can we say with confidence? Is it now a matter of complete consensus, even including you know relative skeptics? reasonably sober skeptics um that we are having more windy events we are having more extreme storms on balance these days than we were i mean is that quantifiable beyond doubt no there's still people who doubt it and i think that the um even the relatively i don't think it's just skeptics who do that the 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 sort of rule of thumb that I often turn back to with hurricanes is that it doesn't seem to be the case that we are observing more hurricanes forming than in the past. Um, we've seen, you know, a quite a quite erratic up and down pattern, but the long-term trends are not up. Um, there's some scientific um, evidence to suggest that they may be intensifying. Um, and um, so they're a little bit more powerful than they were before. Um, but even there, there are some, you know, longer term trends in which um, data sets in which in which um it's disputable um but this gets into a whole other kind of climate epistemological question which is right. how do we talk about these changes if we're really if we really need to say that um something has to be you know five standard deviations above expectation given a data set that extends all the way back through the 20th century during a time when the climate was very different um that, that's a really large data set freak weather events happen. And um, it can be hard to say definitively this this thing or that thing wouldn't have happened without the without climate change. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, I think some of the um some of the attribution there is actually slower to, you know, slower to be affirmed than the story that we see with our own eyes, which is, you know, like the latest IPCC report was kind of equivocal about, say, wildfire risk growing in Canada. And then we see this wildfire season in Canada that is, you know, three times as large as any wildfire season ever on record, um, several times as large as the biggest modern American fire seasons, you know, and we're only two thirds of the way through the season. So it could burn considerably more. There are a lot of instances like that where I think the science is to some degree catching up with our anecdotal understanding, although I don't want to get ahead of myself and say that our anecdotes are more reliable. I do think um, because scientists are so reluctant to, you know, um, to because scientists are so wedded to long-term data sets with, um, with a lot of variability, it can be hard to really ascertain the influence there. So when it comes to the, the fires in Maui, we do know that there was drought in Hawaii. It wasn't especially off the charts given compared to what it was a year or two ago. Um, we know that there was this hurricane passing through, which was an unusual hurricane. It actually started in the Atlantic Ocean, um, passed through to the Pacific, then crossed the international dateline. So it officially changed from being a hurricane to a typhoon. That's pretty rare. Um, but, it, you know, there are hurricanes around Hawaii with some regularity. This one was relatively strong, but not, you know, mm -hmm. historically strong. Um, and then there were a lot of other sort of micro um, effects and micro changes, both climate and human built. Um, that show that 
you know, that, that brought us to a place where a whole town could be incinerated in the space of a few hours. And unfortunately, we're seeing that kind of dynamic play out more and more. Um, this is, of all the things we've seen this summer, I would say among the hardest to pin neatly on climate change. But I also think it's important for all of us to understand that, like, if we're talking about a complicated weather event, it's almost never going to be the case that climate is the sole driver of that extreme event. It is likely going to be the case that warming will have added a few degrees to a heat wave or some percentage of rain to a to a rainfall. And probably we're dealing with um, a story like that with the with the Maui fire, which is to say um, probably there could have been some fire. Probably it would not have been as intense um, or as destructive in different climate conditions. But Hawaii, for whatever the rest of us Americans tell ourselves about it, is um, is actually a, you know, fire prone place. They have fires there. Um, we don't think about them as much as we think about California, but they happen. Yeah. The question is, as it is with California, are they getting more destructive? Are they burning hotter? Are they proving impossible to contain? And all of these things are um, yeah. sort of important. I mean, yeah. another complication, speaking of California, with the statistics, you know, there was the big, at least one, well, the big Santa Rosa fire. And I know Santa Rosa pretty well. So some of my family lives there. My parents used to live there. I've spent whole summers there. and. Uh, the uh, you know, it's an area where there has been over time the encroachment of houses on, uh, you know, there, there are there the, the residential uh, footprint has expanded uh, in the in the direction of, you know, if you go out there in the summer, there's always, you know, it's all golden. You know, it's all this kind of dryish, tall uh, grass. Um, and the, the I guess the total border between residential areas and that grass has kind of grown as the area has expanded. So is that too, and the same thing with, you know, the development of more seaside properties, you know, because it's when homes burn or flood or whatever that that you get the attention. And that's that's another complication, I'm sure, with uh, figuring out what's really going on. Here's can one I, way. Can to, I stop you for a second? Sure, there's, before sure. you ask that question, yeah. So there, there's all that. There's. I would also note when there is that more development, on um, the kinds of grass that people put on their lawns, the kinds of trees that they plant is also a factor. Um, mm -hmm. And generally speaking, you know, we are we've done a really terrible job over the last couple of decades in um, coordinating development in areas away from wildfire risk. So now that we have we have tens of millions of homes in America that have are within a, a single kilometer of a recent fire, um, tens of millions of homes. Um, and we're, we're actually moving, we're, we're building more aggressively in what's called the wildland urban interface, which is this area of high risk for fire than we are in other places. Um, but I would say, you know, it very much used to be the case that we worried primarily about the burning of homes and, and the, the fire in Maui is an example of, um, a, 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 a firestorm like that. Um, but I think we're also increasingly waking up to the risk of smoke. Um, and in fact, to the, to the idea um, and it's, you know, the fact that, um, smoke is in total considerably more hazardous, um, to humans than, um, property destruction. The number yeah. of people whose health is being negatively impacted by smoke from wildfires is much, much larger. And so the total public health cost is many times greater from smoke. That's something that I think we really started to worry about in 2020 in California, when we saw the, the orange skies in San Francisco. But we woke up to it much more dramatically this year on the East Coast when we saw the Canadian fire. Yeah, I've been living where I'm living on the East Coast for 22 years. I'd never seen anything like it. And this was coming from Canada. 
Um, Just another, you know, interesting, complicating aspect to it, which is to say, you know, we used to think of um, climate impacts as um, local, primarily. Um, 87% of the smoke impact of a wildfire takes place outside the county in which the fire is burning. Six percent takes place outside the state in which the fire is burning. And here you had massive public health impacts outside the country in which the fire was burning, which makes mm -hmm. coordination of resources, strategic response to fires, a really messy question. It also raises, um, you know, raises the matter of how, how we're responding and managing fire in general and whether we should be managing it for limiting destruction to property or to try to do something to limit um, smoke impacts, um, if that's even possible. But sorry, I, I interrupted. Well, I was going to ask, what are the least controversial indices of a warming climate? Uh, in other words, the, the things that if you cited them, you would get the least blowback from skeptics. I would assume one is, although even these, even taking the temperature of the planet, I know is a complicated thing. There are different ways to do it. But I would assume that You've got the fact of a warming planet, even leaving aside the question of whether you attribute that to human activity. I assume there's a, been a pretty uncontroversial at this point warming of the planet, but maybe I'm wrong. I would think the the sea levels are measurably rising, but I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. What 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 are the least controversial uh, indices of this? I, I would start with with global temperature rise. I think basically every Every measure, every serious institution has um, calculated that within a quite narrow band. And you can find some kooks who will argue with you, but you know anybody who's, who's really a scientist will agree that the planet has warmed considerably and that the large majority of that um, is because of human activity, um, beginning with agricultural changes a long time ago and, and then really accelerating with um, the burning of fossil fuels so that, as I mentioned earlier, like more than half of all the damage has happened in the last 25 years. Um, and a quarter of all the damage we've ever done to the, to the planet's atmosphere has been done since um, Barack Obama was elected president of the US, um, which is kind of amazing to think about. Um, and this damage is, is, you know, is it's effectively permanent. When we put carbon in the atmosphere, it's, um, it'll stay for at least centuries, maybe millennia, um, which means that the climate effect of someone burning a of coal in China is now effectively equivalent to the someone burning a piece of coal in 19th century Manchester. Um, and all of that carbon that's up there in the atmosphere that is more or less permanent actually weighs more by volume, uh, sorry, by mass than um, everything we've ever built on the Earth's surface. So we've mm. built a more permanent monument to human civilization up in the atmosphere in terms of carbon emissions than we've managed in all the cities, all the ports, all the airports of the world. Um, I think global temperature rise um, as a result primarily of carbon emissions is, you know, totally incontrovertible. Then the more particular impacts and claims that are made that are, um, you know, are sort of the, the clearest, um, least controversial, I would say, are that um, we're going to have more intense heat in local in local places. We're going to have more heat waves that last longer um, and are register higher temperatures. Um, there is also uh, the prediction of um, additional water in the atmosphere, which is essentially um, a sidecar to the heat prediction because a warmer air can hold more water. Um, and in particular locations, you get that plays out in different ways, which is to say you may have plenty of parts of the planet that are expecting much more arid futures. 
Um, but overall, we're talking about more water in the atmosphere and heavier rainfalls. And I think, you know, to a certain degree, that's actually been the most striking, um, a lot of the most striking footage of the last few years has been to see flash floods, um, you know, across Northern Italy, other parts of Europe. This summer, there, there was a, a, you know, flooding associated with a major typhoon that hit China that left, um, you know, really major cities like quite deeply underwater. Um, and so we're seeing that more and more. Um, most of the other, most of the other effects, you know, hurricanes, wildfire, um, uh, effects on, on crops, um, effects on human productivity and, and, um, economic productivity are, um, a little bit more, you know, they have much wider ranges of, of uncertainty and there are people who take issue with some of that research. Um, mm -hmm. but I think in general, um, the, the issue is that we try to, we often try to tell the story in global terms when the effects are, are much more local and in fact, much more predictably, much more predictable. But, but things like uh, melting ice caps, glaciers, that's clear, right? And presumably it's gotten to a point where the actual, the rise in the sea level is measurable, right? Yeah. And and that's proceeding at what rate currently, the rise in the sea level? Well, it depends how you want to say currently. I mean, the the rates can differ quite dramatically year to year. There can be really large events of ice melt that add um, significant uh -huh. um, sea level. I mean, by significant, I mean, you know, still in the, in the millimeters, but... Um, Say you know, over the last 20 years, roughly. Um, you know, honestly, I, I don't know the, the number off the top of my head. I would guess that over the last 20 years, it's been something like, um, you know, 10 centimeters or 15 centimeters, not something that's, mm -hmm. um, you know, truly dramatic um, to the naked eye, um, but which is most worrying when it combines with, um, with storm surges and um, the way that the additional water can can and, produce much. And is it expected to accelerate the the uh, if if we say we didn't make any further improvements? Is the idea that the rate tends to grow, or do we know? The physics of ice melting is incredibly complicated, um, mm -hmm. and basically the short answer is that we don't know. We can make some high-end, like this would be the ceiling kind of predict predictions because we know how much ice is out there. Um, those predictions are unbelievably large. I mean, it means adding, you know, if all the ice on the planet melted, you may know this from your story in 1989, uh, that would add 260 feet to sea level rise. Um, but that would only happen over many centuries. The question mm -hmm. of what amount of ice melt we have already locked in, um, how fast it will proceed over the next few decades is very uncertain science. We know the direction of change. We know that more ice is gonna melt, there will be sea level rise. There's no stopping that for the foreseeable future. There are a lot of scientists who believe some parts of the Earth's ice system have already passed tipping points and will actually melt um, in an uncontrollable way going forward, but it will be uncontrolled for millennia, not for decades. Um, and, and exactly how much we can count on, say, in 2050 or 2100, those error bars are really, really quite large. There's some people who think in terms of meters, some people who think in terms of feet, and some people who think in terms of centimeters. And those are all, you know, plausible um, anchors of expectation. Mm -hmm. And in terms of time lag, I had thought in terms of roughly, in terms of, you know, how long it takes for things we do to take meaningful effect, right? 
I, I had vaguely in my head, and I should say, I haven't looked closely at this since I wrote that thing in 1988. I've tried to kind of keep track. But uh, but it's always seemed to me that although you'd like to see a lot more actual action on this front, it's always seemed to me that this was getting a fair amount of publicity if people would pay attention. And so I've kind of tended to focus myself on more obscure issues, but or issues that uh, if arguably no less important are getting less attention. But anyway, uh, that digression aside, I was left thinking that there's kind of a several decade lag between when you make a reform, like let's say we radically reduced the amount of carbon emissions right now, like a several decade lag before that really kicks in. Now, is first of all, is that even true? Um, leaving aside the further question of whether what it takes to actually undo the damage that was already done and whether the effects of that don't keep uh, accumulating as you suggested. It used to be conventional wisdom that we had some amount of what was called warming in the pipeline so that if we snapped our fingers and stopped carbon emissions tomorrow, we would still have some amount of additional warming, possibly as much as a half a degree or more um, to come. Mm -hmm. um, more recent science has called that into question and suggested that pretty quickly within a decade or two of um, getting all the way to zero, um, the planet's climate would stabilize, the temperature would stabilize um, at least for the set of climate impacts that are called um, you know, fast feedback impacts. So the kinds of things that we're talking about on a century timescale. And that is quite good news. It means if we actually get to mm -hmm. you know, net zero in 2050 or 2070, basically things are going to be stable on timescales that humans make decisions about. So you know, if we're at net zero in 2070, probably in 2120, it's going to look quite similar to what it looked in 2070 or 2080. Um, there are a whole other set of slow, what are called slow feedback, um, carbon cycle feedbacks um, that may add some significant amount of warming to that total. Um, for instance, like if all the ice on the planet melts, that will add an additional amount of warming, um, some significant additional warming because the ice won't reflect nearly, there won't be that ice to reflect sunlight into the atmosphere that there is today. Um, we don't know exactly how to quantify all those feedbacks because we don't know, you know, we're running this experiment just once. And in general, climate scientists don't talk about them. They really do anchor their narrative in this century, which means they can exclude all of those perhaps more worrying futures. Um, but I would say that while there's been reassuring science recently that we have our handle our hands on the levers a little bit more directly than we thought a decade or two ago mm -hmm. um it's not the case that in a truly long-term sort of geological perspective sense that um if we solve the carbon problem this century as humans that we will um immediately stop warming forever i would say in addition to that to add an additional complication not to get too too in the weeds about it but um I mentioned james hansen's recent papers um, suggesting that we could be due for considerably more warming than most of the conventional modeling now suggests. Um, he, in one of these papers, calculated what he called committed warming um, of today's present carbon concentration of 10 degrees Celsius. So that's like seven or eight times what we have today. And again, there was a, a lot of back and forth. Scientists took issue with it, in part, I think, because 
phrase committed warming, which has a scientific technical meaning, um, is not all that legible to most people. What it means in plain speak is that if we held carbon concentration stable forever, that's the amount of warming that we would expect over many, many millennia. Um, so what Hansen was saying is that if we kept carbon concentrations where they are today, which is about 420 parts per million in the atmosphere, that over the by the year, you know, um, 3,500, we could expect um, 10 C of warming. Now, a lot of scientists said that's silly. We know we're going to solve this carbon problem. We don't know whether it's going to be 2050, 2080, 2130, but we know over the next couple of centuries, we're going to get to zero. And so we shouldn't worry about the effect of carbon concentrations being stable because while carbon comes down slowly after you get to zero, it does come down. And over time, we will be taking enough carbon out of the atmosphere that we're not going to be modeling 420 or 480 or 500, whatever it is when, when we get to zero. Um, we won't be keeping that stable for a long enough time for that committed warming to kick in, which I think is true and reassuring. But when I looked into it a little further, I was alarmed to see that the difference between the amount of carbon that we would need to allow the amount of ongoing emissions that we would need to continue to produce in order to allow the planet to draw down that carbon and make that committed warming um, impossible and the amount of emissions we'd have to continue producing to keep that concentration stable and keep us on that 10 C path, or potentially 10 C path is only about one or two gigatons a year of carbon, which is about, um, a couple of percent of today's carbon emissions, which means, so for instance, the Canadian fires this year have already released more than a gigaton of carbon. The, the carbon released by today's Canadian wild, by this year's Canadian wildfires would be, if it were to continue in an ongoing way, would be sufficient to keep carbon concentration stable, even in a world in which the human activity had entirely eliminated carbon and we were by every measurable metric at net zero. Um, and so I think that that's another big, important sort of framing conceptual fact here, which is mm -hmm. active uncertainty and exactly how to model this stuff. It's quite messy. You know, it's there, there are ways in which it's precise and ways in which it's totally imprecise. And the, in the really big picture, we are, we are running this experiment. We're thinking, we're hoping, we're, we believe that if we get to net zero in relatively short order, we will stop warming in relatively short order. But there's a lot of stuff that we don't totally understand about the experiment we're running. And our, you know, our descendants will have, we have, to, have to be living with mm -hmm. those, those impacts. And we can't anticipate how the technology, uh, you know, the remedial technology will evolve. Uh, I gather, I think this week, there was a story about the Biden administration, uh, some sort of carbon capture thing being set in motion. Now, I gather there are two kinds of carbon capture. You can do it at the source, like at a coal-fired power plant. You can capture the carbon before it gets into the air. You can also try to just pluck it out of the air, right? Like wherever you are. And is it not the case that we're going to set up some things that try that approach and maybe this isn't the first time we've done this i don't know but are you familiar with the story i'm talking about yep um so yeah there i would i would actually say um there there's a third bucket which is um other kinds of carbon removal that are not you know we, we can plant trees we can right. plant seaweed forests um there are also some more out there ideas about 
sort of alkalizing the ocean to make ocean uptake of carbon um, more intense or sprinkling particular rocks over open areas so that those rocks absorb carbon. There's a whole range of stuff from somewhat non-invasive, even appealing on its own terms measures to um, approaches like direct air capture, which is these giant carbon sucking machines that are basically, you know, plantations um, running the industrial revolution in reverse, taking the taking the air, filtering out the carbon, concentrating it into something like coal and then burying it underground back where it was before. Um, in fact, a lot of the proposals for these kinds of um, operations um, cite them at the site of old oil and gas um, extraction so that we can actually literally bury the carbon exactly where it came from because we know that it can um, it can sort of stay there safely. So there is one commercially... Um, you know, there there is one plant doing this, um, doing the, the the direct air capture stuff commercially um, on the planet. It's in Iceland. It runs on hydropower, and it has a, a quite limited capacity and a very high price tag. So mm -hmm. it's important to say a couple things about you know direct air capture in general. I think because it does invite a kind of utopian thinking, which is like we can just all we can clean this up like we clean anything else up. Um, we, the tech does work. We know how to do it. Um, we know how to suck it out of the air. We know how to um, separate the carbon. We know how to concentrate it. We know how to bury it. Um, we know how to bury it safely. Um, it takes a lot of energy and it's really expensive. So that right now- um, And the energy the itself, depending on where it came from, could be producing carbon, right? Yeah, and, and that's that's one big question is like, if we're talking about the next 30 years, do we want to be turning any of our renewable capacity over to negative emissions as opposed to using it to power more homes or power more cars? Um, or do we want to- In the end, it doesn't, I mean, it, strictly speaking, doesn't matter, right? It's fungible. I mean, if you use, you've got so much renewable energy being generated. Uh, where you put it exactly in a certain sense doesn't matter because all the places you don't put it are going to have to use something else. Does that make sense? Maybe that's too obscure. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of different ways of doing this accounting yeah. and they kind of point you in different directions. But in general, um, almost everyone who you ask about these issues will say by far the cheapest way of getting carbon out of the atmosphere is not putting up there, putting it up there in the first place. So, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, the, the, the expense of, extracting it in the, by this method is so large that only in some very particular sectors um, with relatively small carbon footprints does it make economic sense in the sort of medium-term future. Now, maybe 2050, 2060, 2080, um, the tech will have improved enough, the cost, cost curves will come down. But there's almost no one who works outside the fossil fuel business who says that we should be doing this to deal with fossil fuel emissions. Um, mm -hmm. It's, you know, the, the basic idea is we know how to decarbonize power. We know how to decarbonize transportation. We should do those um, things using the tools we have now. And we should be um, doing some of this moonshot R&D development, whether it's, um, you know, really from scratch or in the case of direct air capture, basically investing in it to drive down cost curves um, to deal with the hard to abate sectors that we don't have easy solutions for at the moment. And mm -hmm. that is the goal of this Biden administration um, policy. It's not to meaningfully reduce the American carbon footprint. Um, it's mm -hmm. a very small buy, it's a few, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. But, you know, in the context of what we're doing generally, um, the IRA was a the low bound is $369 billion. Most people think it's maybe upwards of a trillion dollars of spend when all is said and done. Um, so this is a very small fraction of that spending. And what they're really trying to do is just to um, 
you know, initiate innovation to drive the cost curves down so that 20 or 30 years from now, it may be a more viable option in more um, in more sectors. Now, that's this is an interesting dynamic because, you know, direct air capture, because it's like industrial tech, because it has come about in part out of a growing realization that government policies are not sufficient to get us to our climate goals, in part because there's a lot of enthusiasm um, for it in both in Silicon Valley and in the and in the fossil fuel business. For all of these reasons, it has acquired this sort of cultural profile as like a non-governmental market solution, like some tech optim techno-optimist market solution. But there's no market for carbon. <laughs> mm -hmm. Nobody's paying you to bury carbon. Um, you know, there's at the moment some voluntary markets, like if you feel guilty and you buy a plane ticket, you want to offset that carbon, you know, oftentimes the airline will say, you know, here's 10 bucks. Do you want to offset your carbon? You can click yes. Usually if it's as low as 10 bucks, it'll mean that it's a bad offset. That's not really going to work. Um, and doing this, doing that same thing with direct air capture would probably at least double your plane ticket. Now that's not to say that that's an impossible hill to get over but it's a much, much higher climb. But beyond the voluntary markets, there's no reason anybody would pay you to put carbon underground. And so what's happened over the last couple of years is that there's been a lot of private investment um, in trying to establish the viability of the technology in order to, I think, eventually spur government interest and government, um, you know, government expenditure. And the hope is that over the course of the next decade or so, we start to think of this job more like we think of garbage removal than like we think of um, you know, electrifying the grid or whatever. And that some governments in the world, maybe most especially the US, which has the largest um, historical uh, responsibility for climate change, um, would be contributing some meaningful amount of money towards a regular running of direct air capture facilities. But mm -hmm. And I think that I think that probably will happen to some extent, but um, it's also just worth keeping in mind the scale that we're talking about here, which is, um, you know, I think something like um, ten thousand um, tons of carbon have been removed in this by this measure in the entire history of the technology, and um, the IPC says that. To hit our climate goals, we're probably going to need um, billions of tons being removed every year. Um, so it requires the equivalent of one of these new plants opening basically every day for the next 30 years. And we have only one operational in the world today. Um, so it's, you know, um, we have we may have dreams of carbon capture, but, you know, the, the job of actually building out that infrastructure um, is enormous. And at the moment, there's no market and probably no path to a market to make it viable. So we're, you know, in general. The carbon capture, direct air capture system could be by the middle of the century or the second half of the century as big as today's oil and gas business. That business, in terms of physical infrastructure, that gas, oil and gas business took a century and a half to develop and was powered by profits. And we're talking about doing the equivalent build out today with no obvious, um, you know, no obvious incentive. possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, the tech does exist. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I guess it's true in a lot of realms. I mean, in principle, I mean, like, for example, this reflective, uh, this technology is supposed to reflect the rays of the sun back into outer space, 
various versions of that, ranging from giant space umbrellas to, I guess, more plausibly, some sort of particulate matter that's put in the atmosphere. That, too, exists in principle, but it's a long way off, I gather, uh, from being practical. And I would say, I would say director, director capture is much farther along. I mean, we're actually okay. doing it today. We're just doing it very small scale. We're not doing... We're not putting mirrors in the atmosphere. We're not putting sulfur in the atmosphere to purposefully cool the planet. Um, we're maybe going to start doing some small-scale trials to test it, but it's it's farther mm -hmm. off. Okay. So listen, we've been talking uh, close to an hour, I guess, and it's common on this podcast to, at that point, um, go into overtime. The first part of the podcast is public, available at all. Uh, the rest is available to paid subscribers to the Non-Zero newsletter, which... Uh, it's easy to to become one of um, you can you can uh, click the link in the show notes on the podcast app or Google non-zero and Substack, and then you can just set up a a, a podcast feed that'll always have uh, all the bonus content of various kinds. And there's also written content that then is inaccessible, then accessible to you in newsletter. Um, before we go, I want to uh, encourage people to read your stuff. First of all, the newsletter in New York Times. Now that is for paid uh, New York Times subscribers, right? Uh, that's so. So you're you're sympathetic to this whole concept of a newsletter paywall, I, I guess. At least you, you get the logic. Um, you're also writing other stuff less often now, or what? Oh, I mean, my job is I'm supposed to write a weekly column, which is usually published as a newsletter, although it's sometimes published not as a newsletter for really technical, weedsy reasons. Um, and then I also write for the magazine um, a couple of times a year, longer right. pieces. Yeah. So when, you're, when your column's not a, a newsletter, it is uh, publicly available but where the other opinion content is? Yes, although, again, exactly why that happens and when it happens makes sense to some people at the New York Times, probably nobody outside the New York Times. So, <laughs> Okay, so, so that's an incentive to keep checking every day uh, you never know when it'll be there. Um, the uh, order just become a paid subscriber to the New York Times if you want one and and get the. Let me just just to like um, everything that I publish is available to readers. It's just you know it, as with anything on the New York Times, like you have to be a subscriber to read it. Like there's a paywall. Right. I guess. See, I've lost track of what is and isn't paywalled on the New York Times to begin with. But you're right. In theory, the whole thing because because I'm a subscriber. But in theory, the whole any given article may be denied you at any given time if you're not a paid subscriber in principle. Although we know how paywalls work, they like to be pretty welcoming at first and so on. Anyway, okay, so so I shouldn't have uh, uh, singled you out for some kind of special, uh, put you in some kind of special category. You just write for the New York Times and that's where your stuff is. And uh, people should check it out. Is there anything else they should uh, check out before we go into overtime? You wanna uh, Twitter handle anything you wanna, uh, you know, my Twitter is D. Wallace Wells. Um, my book is The Uninhabitable Earth. Um, I would like to emphasize the subtitle of the book, which is Life After Warming. Um, as because the title is the subtitle, it gives a little bit more of a more hope. Um, but those are those are the basic places to find my stuff. Okay. Good. Okay. So I want to in overtime, I want to raise a few things. Um, EVs. What is the truth about EVs and the carbon footprint? And uh and and maybe get into some other things you write about, like uh, possibly even including like AI and pandemics and stuff, because you do go beyond climate change in your newsletter. Okay, so with all that said, uh, we will now uh, head into overtime.